0: are no more fit to come to the communion rail than a dead corpse is fit to sit down at a king's feast. To enjoy a spiritual feast, we must have a spiritual heart and taste and appetite. To suppose that Christ's ordinances can do good to an unspiritual man is as foolish as to put bread and wine into the mouth of a dead person. The careless, the ignorant, And the willfully wicked, so long as they continue in that state, are utterly unfit to be communicants. To urge them to attend is not to do them good but harm. The Lord's Supper is not a converting or justifying ordinance. If a man goes to the table unconverted or unforgiven, he will come away no better at all. But after all, the gun having been cleared of error. The question still remains to be answered: Who are the sort of persons who ought to be communicants? I answered that question in the words of the Church Catechism. I there find the inquiry made: What is required of them who come to the Lord's Supper? In reply, I find it taught that people should examine themselves whether they repent them truly of their former sins, steadfastly purposing to lead a new life, whether they have a lively faith in God's mercy through Christ with a thankful remembrance of His death, and whether they are in charity with all men. In a word, I find that a worthy communicant is one who possesses three simple marks and qualifications, Repentance, Faith, and Charity. Does a man truly repent of sin and hate it? Does a man put his trust in Jesus Christ as his only hope of salvation? Does a man live in charity towards others? He that can truly say to each of these questions, I do. He is a man that is scripturally qualified for the Lord's Supper. Let him come boldly. Let no balance be put in his way. He comes up to the Bible standard of communicants. He may draw near with confidence and feel assured that the great master of the banquet is not displeased. Such a man's repentance may be very imperfect. Never mind, is it real? Does he truly repent at all? His faith in Christ may be very weak. Never mind, is it real? A penny is as truly the current coin of the realm and as really stamped with a queen's image as a sovereign. His charity may be very defective in quantity and degree. Never mind, is it genuine? The grand test of a man's Christianity is not the quantity of grace he has got or whether he has any grace at all. The first twelve communicants, when Christ himself gave the bread and wine, were weak in deed, weak in knowledge, weak in faith, weak in courage, weak in patience, weak in love. But eleven of them had that about them which outweighed all defects. They were real, genuine, sincere, and true. Forever let this great principle be rooted in our minds. The only worthy communicant is a man who is experimentally acquainted with repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, and practical love toward others. Are you that man? Then you may draw near to the table and take the sacrament to your comfort. Lower than this, I dare not pitch my standard of a communicant. I will never help to crowd a commune rail with careless, ignorant, self-righteous attendants. Higher than this, I will not pitch my standard. I will never tell anyone to keep away till he is perfect and to wait till his heart is as unruffled as an angel's. I will not do so because I believe That neither my Master nor his apostles would have done so. Show me a man that really feels his sins, really leans on Christ, really struggles to be holy, and I will bid him welcome in my Master's name. He may feel weak, erring, empty, feeble, doubting, wretched, and poor. What matter? St. Paul, I believe, would have received him as a right communicant, and I will do likewise. 3. In the third place, let us consider what benefit communicants may expect to get by going to the table and attending the Lord's Supper. This is a point of grave importance, and one on which vast mistakes abound, on no point, perhaps, Connected with this ordinance are the views of Christians so vague and misty and undefined. One common idea among men is that taking the sacrament must do them good. Why? They cannot explain. What good? They cannot exactly say. But they have a loose general notion that it is the right thing to be a communicant and that somehow or other it is of service to their souls. This is, of course, nothing better than ignorance. It is unreasonable to suppose that such communicants can please Christ or receive any real benefit from what they do. If there is any principle clearly laid down in the Bible about any act of religious worship, it is this, that it must be intelligent. The worshipper must at least understand something about what he is doing. Mere bodily worship, unaccompanied by mind or heart, is utterly worthless. The man who walks up to a communion rail and eats the bread and drinks the wine as a mere matter of form because his minister tells him, without any clear idea of what it all means, derives no benefit. He might just as well stay at home Another common idea among men is that taking the sacrament will help them to heaven and take away their sins. To this delusive idea you may trace up the habit in some parishes of going to the sacrament once a year in order, as an old farmer once said, to wipe off the year's sins. To this idea again, You may trace the too common practice of sending for a minister in time of sickness in order to receive the sacrament before death. Alas, how many take comfort about their relatives after they have lived the most ungodly life for no better reason than this, that they took the sacrament when they were dying. Whether they repented and believed and had new hearts, they neither seem to know or care. All they know is that they took the sacrament before they died. My heart sinks within me when I hear people resting on such evidence as this. Ideas like these are mournful proofs of the ignorance that fills the minds of men about the Lord's Supper. They are ideas for which there is not the slightest warrant either in Scripture or the prayer book. The sooner they are cast aside and given up, the better for the church and the world. Let us settle it firmly in our minds that the Lord's Supper was not given to be a means either of justification or of conversion. It was never meant to give grace where there is no grace already or to provide pardon when pardon is not already enjoyed. It cannot possibly supply the absence of repentance to God and Faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an ordinance for the penitent, not for the impenitent. For the believing, not for the unbelieving. For the converted, not for the unconverted. The unconverted man who fancies that he can find a shortcut road to heaven by taking the sacrament without treading the well-worn steps of repentance and faith will find to his cost one day that he is totally deceived. The Lord's Supper was meant to increase and help the grace that a man has, but not to impart the grace that he has not. It was certainly never intended to make our peace with God, to justify or to convert. The simplest statement of the benefit which a true hearted communicant may expect to receive from the Lord's Supper is that which is supplied by the church catechism, the strengthening and refreshing of our souls, clearer views of Christ and his atonement, clearer views of all the offices which Christ fills as our mediator and advocate, clearer views of the complete redemption Christ has obtained for us by his vicarious death on the cross, clearer views of our full and perfect acceptance in Christ before God. Fresh reasons for deep repentance for sin, fresh reasons for lively faith, these are among the leading returns which a believer may confidently expect to get from his attendance at the Lord's table. He that eats the bread and drinks the wine in a right spirit will find himself drawn into closer communion with Christ and will feel to know Him more and understand Him better. A. Right reception of the Lord's Supper has a humbling effect on the soul. The sight of these emblems of Christ's body and blood reminds us how sinful sin must be if nothing less than the death of God's own Son could make satisfaction for it or redeem us from its guilt. Never surely ought we to be so clothed with humility as when we kneel at the communion rail. The right reception of the Lord's Supper has a cheering effect on the soul. The sight of the bread broken and the wine poured out reminds us how full, perfect, and complete is our salvation. Those lively emblems? Remind us what an enormous price has been paid for our redemption. They press on us the mighty truth that believing on Christ we have nothing to fear because a sufficient payment has been made for our debt. The precious blood of Christ answers every charge that can be brought against us. God can be a just God and yet the justifier of everyone that believeth on Jesus. Romans 3.26 See, right reception of the Lord's Supper has a sanctifying effect on the soul. The bread and wine remind us how great is our debt of gratitude to our Lord and how thoroughly we are bound to live for Him who died for our sins. They seem to say to us, Remember what Christ has done for you and Ask yourself whether there is anything too great to do for him. Deep, right reception of the Lord's Supper into hearts has a restraining effect on the soul. Every time a believer goes up to the communion rail, he is reminded what a serious thing it is to be a Christian and what an obligation is laid on him to lead a consistent life. But with such a price as That bread and wine, called to his recollection, ought he not to glorify Christ in body and spirit which are his? The man that goes regularly and intelligently to the Lord's table finds it increasingly hard to yield to sin and conform to the world. Such is a brief account of the benefits which a right hearted communicant may expect to receive from the Lord's Supper. In eating that bread and drinking that cup, such a man will have his repentance deepened, his faith increased, his knowledge enlarged, his habit of holy living strengthened. He will realize more of the real presence of Christ in his heart. Eating that bread by faith, he will feel closer communion with the body of Christ. Drinking that wine by faith, He will feel closer communion with the blood of Christ. He will see more clearly what Christ is to him and what he is to Christ. He will understand more thoroughly what it is to be one with Christ and Christ one with him. He will feel the roots of his soul's spiritual life watered and the work of grace in his heart established, built up and carried forward. All these things may seem and sound foolishness to a natural man, but to a true Christian, these things are light and health and life and peace. No wonder that a true Christian finds the Lord's Supper a source of blessing. Remember, I do not pretend to say that all Christians experience the full blessing of the Lord's Supper, which I have just attempted to describe, Nor yet do I say that the same believer will always find his soul in the same spiritual frame and always receive the same amount of benefit from the sacrament. But this I will boldly say. You will rarely find a true believer who will not say that he reckons the Lord's Supper one of his best helps and highest privileges. He will tell you that If he were deprived of the Lord's Supper, he should find the loss of it a great drawback to his soul. There are some things of which we never know the value till they are taken from us. So, I believe it is with the Lord's Supper, the weakest and humblest of God's children gets a blessing from this sacrament to an extent of which he is not aware. Four. In the last place, I have to consider why it is that many so-called Christians never come to the Lord's Supper. It is a simple matter of fact that myriads of baptized persons never come to the table of the Lord. They would not endure to be told that they deny the faith and are practically not in communion with Christ when they worship. They attend a place of Christian worship. When they hear religious teaching, it is the teaching of Christianity. When they are married, they use a Christian service. When their children are baptized, they ask for the sacrament of baptism. Yet all this time, they never come to the Lord's Supper. They often live on, in this state of mind for many years, and to all appearance, are not ashamed They often die in this condition without ever having received the sacrament and yet profess to feel hope at the last and their friends express a hope about them. And yet they live and die in open disobedience to a plain command of Christ. These are simple facts. Let anyone look around him and deny them if he can. I challenge anyone to deny that the non-communicants in all English congregations form the majority and the communicants the minority of the worshipers. Now, how is this? What account can we give of it? Our Lord Jesus Christ's last injunctions to His disciples are clear, plain, and unmistakable. He says to all Eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. Did he leave it to our discretion, whether we would attend to his injunction or not? Did he mean that it did not signify whether his disciples did or did not keep up the ordinance he had just established? Certainly not. The very idea is absurd and one certainly never dreamed of in apostolic times. St. Paul evidently takes it for granted that every Christian is a communicant. A class of Christian worshippers who never came to the table was a class whose existence was unknown to him. What then are we to say of that large multitude of non-communicants which walks out of our churches every sacrament Sunday? unabashed, unhumbled, not afraid, not the least ashamed. Why is it? How is it? What does it all mean? Let us look these questions fairly in the face and endeavor to give an answer to them. One, for one thing, many are not communicants because they are utterly careless and thoughtless about religion and ignorant of the very first principles of Christianity. They go to church as a matter of form because other people go, but they neither know nor care anything about what is done at church. The faith of Christ has no place either in their hearts or heads or consciences or wills or understandings. It is a mere affair of words and names about which they know no more than or. Gallio. there were very few such Christians in St. Paul's times, if indeed there were any. There are far too many in these last days of the world when everything seems to be wearing out and running to seed. They are the dead weight of the churches and the scandal of Christianity. What such people need is light, knowledge, grace, a renewed conscience a changed heart. In their present state, they have no part or lot in Christ, and dying in this state, they are unfit for heaven. Do I wish them to come to the Lord's Supper? Certainly not, till they are converted. Except a man be converted, he will never enter the kingdom of God. Two, for another thing, many are not communicants, because they know they are living in the habitual practice of some sin, or in the habitual neglect of some Christian duty. Their conscience tells them that so long as they live in a state and do not break off from their sins, they are unfit to come to the table of the Lord. Well, they are so far quite right. I wish no man to be a communicant, if he cannot give up his sins. But I warn these people not to forget that if they are unfit for the Lord's Supper, they are unfit to die. And that if they die in their present condition, they will be lost eternally. The same sins which disqualify them for the sacrament must certainly disqualify them for heaven. Do I want them to come to the Lord's Supper as they are? Certainly not, but I do want them to repent and be converted, to cease to do evil and to break off from their sins. Forever let it be remembered that the man unfit for the Lord's Supper is unfit to die. Three, for another thing, some are not communicants because they fancy it will add to their responsibility. They are not, as many, ignorant and careless about religion. They even attend regularly on the means of grace and like the preaching of the gospel. But they say they dread coming forward and making a profession. They fear that they might afterwards fall away and bring scandal on the cause of Christianity. They think it wisest to be on the safe side and not commit themselves at all. Such people would do well to remember that if they avoid responsibility of one kind by not coming to the Lord's table, they incur responsibility of another kind quite as grave and quite as injurious to the soul. They are responsible for open disobedience to the command of Christ. They are shrinking from doing that which their Master continually enjoins on His disciples from confessing Him before men. No doubt it is a serious step to come forward and receive the sacrament. It is a step that none should take lightly and without self-examination. But it is no less a serious step to walk away and refuse the ordinance when we remember who invites us to receive it and for what purpose it was appointed. I warn the people I am now dealing with, to take heed what they are doing. Let them not flatter themselves that it can ever be a wise, a prudent, a safe line of conduct to neglect a plain command of Christ. They may find at length, to their cost, that they have only increased their guilt and forsaken their mercies. 4. What another thing? Some are not communicants because they fancy they are not yet worthy. They wait and stand still under the mistaken notion that no one is qualified for the Lord's Supper unless he feels within him something like perfection. They pitch their idea of a communicant so high that they despair of attaining to it. Waiting for inward perfection, they live, and waiting for it to... Often they die. Now, such persons would do well to understand that they are completely mistaken in their estimate of what worthiness really is. They are forgetting that the Lord's Supper was not intended for unsinning angels, but for men and women compassed with infirmity, dwelling in a world full of temptations and needing mercy and grace every day they live. A sense of our own utter unworthiness is the best worthiness we can bring to the communion rail. A deep feeling of our own entire indebtedness to Christ for all we have and hope for is the best feeling we can bring with us. The people I now have in view ought to consider seriously whether the ground they have taken up is tenable and whether they are not standing in their own life if they are waiting till they feel in themselves perfect hearts, perfect motives, perfect feelings, perfect repentance, perfect love, perfect faith, they will wait forever. There never were such communicants in any age, certainly not in the days of our Lord and of the apostles. There never will be as long as the world stands. Nay, rather... The very thought that we feel literally worthy is a symptom of secret self-righteousness and proves us unfit for communion in God's sight. Sinners we are when we first come to the throne of grace. Sinners we shall be till we die. Converted, changed, renewed, sanctified, but sinners still. In short, no man, is a really worthy communicant who does not deeply feel that he is a miserable sinner. 5. In the last place, some object to be communicants because they see others coming to the Lord's table who are not worthy and not in a right state of mind. Because others eat and drink unworthily, they refuse to eat and drink at all of all the grounds taken up by non-communicants to justify their own neglect of Christ's ordinance, I must plainly say, I know none which seem to be so foolish, so weak, so unreasonable and so unscriptural as this. It is as good as saying that we will never receive the Lord's Supper at all. When shall we ever find a body of communicants on earth of which All the members are converted. It is setting up ourselves in the most unhealthy attitude of judging others. Who art thou that judgest another? What is that to thee? Follow thou me. It is depriving ourselves of a great privilege merely because others profane it and make a bad use of it. It is pretending to be wiser than our master himself. If the words of St. Luke mean anything, Judas Iscariot was present at the First Communion and received the bread and wine among others. It is taking up ground for which there is no warrant in Scripture. St. Paul rebukes the Corinthians sharply for the irreverent behavior of some of the communicants, but I cannot find him giving a single hint that when some came to the table unworthily, others ought to draw back or stay away. Let me advise the non-communicants I now have in view to beware of being wise above that which is written. Let them study the parable of the wheat and tares and mark how both were to grow together till the harvest. Matthew thirteen thirty. Perfect churches, perfect congregations, Perfect bodies of communicants are all unattainable in this world of confusion and sin. Let us covet the best gifts and do all we can to check sin in others, but let us not starve our own selves because others are ignorant sinners and turn their meat into poison. If others are foolish enough to eat and drink unworthily, let us not turn our backs on Christ's ordinance, and refuse to eat and drink at all? Such are the five common excuses why myriads in the present day, though professing themselves Christians, never come to the Lord's Supper. One common remark may be made about them, there is not a single reason among the five which deserves to be called good, and which does not condemn the man who gives it. I challenge anyone to deny this. I have said repeatedly that I want no one to be a communicant who is not properly qualified. But I ask those who stay away never to forget that the very reasons they assign for their conduct are their condemnation. And I tell them that they stand convicted before God of either being very ignorant of what a communicant is, and what the Lord's Supper is, or else of being persons who are not living rightly and are unfit to die. In short, to say I am a non-communicant is as good as saying one of three things. I am living in sin and cannot come. I know Christ commands me, but I will not obey Him. I am an ignorant man and do not understand what the Lord's Supper means. I know not in what state of mind this book may find the reader of this paper, or what his opinions may be about the Lord's Supper, but I will conclude the whole subject by offering to all some warnings which I venture to think are peculiarly required by the times. In the first place, do not neglect the Lord's Supper. The man who coolly and deliberately refuses to use an ordinance which the Lord Jesus Christ appointed for his profit may be very sure that his soul is in a very wrong state. There is a judgment yet to come. There is an account to be rendered of all our conduct on earth. How anyone can look forward to that day and expect to meet Christ with comfort and in peace, if he has refused all his life to meet Christ in his own ordinance, is a thing that I cannot understand. Does this come home to you? Mind what you are doing. Two, in the second place, do not receive the Lord's Supper carelessly, irreverently, and as a matter of form. The man who walks up to the communion rail and eats the bread and drinks the wine while his heart is far away is committing a great sin and robbing himself of a great blessing. this, as in every other means of grace, everything depends on the state of mind in which the ordinance is used. He that draws near without repentance, faith and love and with a heart full of sin and the world will certainly be nothing better, but rather worse. Does this come home to you? Mind what you are about. Third, in the third place, do not make an idol of the Lord's supper. The man who tells you that it is the first, foremost, chief, and principal ordinance in Christianity is telling you that which he will find it hard to prove. In the great majority of the books of the New Testament, the Lord's Supper is not even named. In the letter to Timothy and Titus about a minister's duties, the subject is not even mentioned. To repent and be converted, to believe and be holy, to be born again and have grace in our hearts, all these things are of far more importance than to be a communicant. Without them. We cannot be saved. Without the Lord's Supper, we can. The penitent thief was not a communicant. And Judas Iscariot was. Are you tempted to make the Lord's Supper override and overshadow everything in Christianity and place it above prayer and preaching? Take care. Mind what you are about. 4. In the fourth place, Do not use the Lord's Supper irregularly. Never be absent when this ordinance is administered. Make every sacrifice to be in your place. Regular habits are essential to the maintenance of the health of our bodies. Regular use of every means of grace is essential to the prosperity of our souls. The man who finds it a weariness, To attend on every occasion when the Lord's table is spread may well doubt whether all is right within him and whether he is ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. If Thomas had not been absent when the Lord appeared the first time to the assembled disciples, he would not have said the foolish things he did. Absence made him miss a blessing. Does this come home to you? Mind what you are about. 5. In the fifth place, do not do anything to bring discredit on your profession as a communicant. The man who, after attending the Lord's table, runs into sin, does more harm perhaps than any sinner. He is a walking sermon on behalf of the devil. He gives occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. He helps to keep people away from Christ. Lying, drinking, adulterous, dishonest, passionate communicants are the helpers of the devil and the worst enemies of the gospel. Does this come home to you? Mind what you are about. 6. In the last place, Do not despond and be cast down if with all your desires you do not feel to get great good from the Lord's Supper. Very likely you are expecting too much. Very likely you are a poor judge of your own state. Your soul's roots may be strengthening and growing while you think you are not getting on. Very likely you are forgetting that earth is not heaven and that here we walk by sight and not by faith, and must expect nothing perfect. Lay these things to heart. Do not write bitter things against yourself without cause. To every reader into whose hands this paper may fall, I commend the whole subject of it as deserving of serious and solemn consideration. I am nothing better than a poor fallible man myself, but if I have made up my mind on any point, it is this, that there is no truth which demands such plain speaking as the truth about the Lord's Supper. Note. I ask the special attention of my readers to the following extract from the last charge of the late Dr. Longley, Archbishop of Canterbury. The office held by the Archbishop, The remarkable gentleness and mildness of his character, the fact that this charge contains his last sentiments, and that it was not made public till after his death, all this appears to me to invest these extracts about the Lord's Supper with peculiar interest. It is far from my intention to impute to all those who have taking the ill-advised step of adopting the sacrificial vestments in administering the Lord's Supper, any sympathy with Roman error, but I am constrained to avow that there are plain indications in some of the publications which have been issued as manifestos of the opinions of that section of our Church that some of its professed members, yea, even of her minister's, think themselves at liberty to hold the doctrines of the Church of Rome in relation to the sacrifice of the Mass, and yet retain their position within the pale of the Anglican Church with a vowed purpose of eliminating from its formularies every trace of the Reformation as regards its protest against Romish error. The language they hold with respect to it is entirely incompatible with loyalty to the Church to which they profess to belong. They call it a communion deeply tainted with Protestant heresy. Our duty, they say, is the expulsion of the evil, not flight from it. It is no want of charity, therefore, to declare that they remain with us in order that they may substitute the Mass for the Communion. The obvious aim of our reformers having been to substitute the communion for the Mass. Doubtless, the Church of England admits of considerable latitude in the views that may be taken of that most mysterious of all mysteries, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so long as those solemn words of its original institution, this is my body, this is my blood, shall remain in the sentence of consecration, and they never can be erased from it, so long will there be varieties of interpretation of these words, all of which may be consistent with a true allegiance to our Church, provided these three conditions be observed. One, that they be not construed to signify that the natural body of Christ is present in the sacrament. Two, not to admit of any adoration either of the sacramental bread and wine there bodily received or of any corporal presence of Christ's natural body and blood, Three, nor to justify the belief that the body and blood are again offered as a satisfaction for sin, seeing that the offering of Christ once made was a perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, original and actual. These are the limits which our Church imposes upon the liberty of interpretation of the words of our Blessed Lord. The use of these sacrificial vestments is, in the minds of many, intimately connected with the idea that an essential element in the Holy Communion is the offering to God a sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ, which abide with the elements in a mysterious manner after the act of consecration. The minister wears the vestments at that time as a sacrificing priest. According to this view, it would seem that the most important part of this holy sacrament is what we offer to God, not what we receive from Him. This view is not recognized by the Church of England in her formularies. The general definition in the 25th article states, The sacraments are certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace by the which God doth work invisibly in us. And it is said specifically of the Lord's Supper, article 28, that it is the sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death, insomuch that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. The idea of the sacrifice of that body and blood finds no place in either of these strict definitions. The Catechism speaks the same language when it defines the sacrament to be an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us. Nor will an examination of the office of the Holy Communion itself give any countenance to the idea in question. The only distinct oblation or offering mentioned in that office is previous to the consecration of the elements in the prayer for the church militant and therefore cannot be an offering or sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. And the only sacrifice which we are spoken of as making is the offering of ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and lively sacrifice. The footnote directs us to see Proctor on the Common Prayer, page 320. Our church seems most studiously to have avoided any expression which could countenance the notion of a perpetual sacrifice of Christ, while on the other hand, it speaks of Christ's death upon the cross as his own oblation of himself, once offered as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. No room is left for the repetition of that sacrifice, or for the admission of any other sacrifice for sin. The Romish notion of a true, real, and substantial sacrifice
1: of the body and blood of Christ